The following sermon is from Redemption Bible Church of New Braunfels, where we are proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology, in order to fulfill the Great Commission in the spirit of the Great Commandment. Amen. Church planting's on our heart. If you're new with us, that's what we love to do. We are a result of that. We um, are six months into this, and uh, God has been good. Has he not been? Yeah, God has been so good. So turn your copy of God's Word to Hebrews chapter 1. That's where we're going to be as we continue in our Essentials of the Faith series. Today we answer this big question, who is Jesus? Now you might be thinking uh, that maybe we're ludicrous to try to answer this big question in one morning, and so we're going to try to boil it down. But uh, that's the question at hand today, is who is Jesus? As we go back to the basics, as we look at our foundations, as we look at the core tenets of what makes Christianity unique, we must answer this question. Last week, uh, we, it was confirmed for us that the Bible is the source of truth. The Bible is enough. The Bible, it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. The Old Testament points to him. The New Testament reveals his work and teaches us how to live in light of his life. And because of that, our church here is even founded on that conviction that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. It's all about Jesus. Those were our three foundational messages. If you weren't here back in October to hear them, you can go back and listen to them on our website or our podcasts, but it's all about Christ. And so who is this Jesus? And what makes him unique, unlike any other person to walk this earth? Hebrews 1, 1 to 3 is going to answer this question. If you have the Blue Bibles, it's on page 580, but follow along now as I read the beginning to the book of Hebrews. It says this, Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Well, end there. Who is Jesus? That is who Jesus is. And this is how the book of Hebrews begins. Anybody ever read the book of Hebrews? It's one of those mysterious books, isn't it? It's mysterious in the fact that uh, we don't know exactly who wrote it and we don't know exactly who it was written to, yet it is full of this God-glorifying, Christ-exalting truth. And it really requires a good grasp of our Old Testament to fully understand it. That's why um, people think that it was written likely to Jewish or Hebrew believers in Christ. But the whole book, all 13 chapters, is chock full of application, challenge, and warning for us who believe uh, today. It is full of application for even us. And right out of the gate, just as we saw, as the letter begins, the writer here takes us to Jesus and gives us a brilliant picture of just who he is. And so as, as you read the book, there's one central theme. The book of Hebrews has one central theme, and it's this. Jesus is better. 
Jesus is better. That's the theme, that's the nail, that's the main point of our message this morning, and it's the whole theme of the entire book, that Jesus is better, that he is far superior. He is far superior. It'll go on to say he's far superior than angels, than high priests, than prophets, than any king who would ever live. Jesus is better. And that is really the only way we can answer our question, who is Jesus? For who can fully and adequately describe all who Jesus is? Many have tried, right? But let me answer it again. Jesus is better. And so let's look at our passage here. Let's look, let's get into the details now. First, Jesus is better because he is completely God. He is completely God, so we must behold his brilliance, his brilliance, not in an intellectual way, but in a majestic way, in a divine way. He is completely God. Jesus is unique because he is this, fully God. Don't miss how this book, or how this book and this verse here begins. Look at it. He says, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke. God spoke. Don't miss this. God has spoken. Is, is God silent? He's not. He never has been in a way. He has, uh, he has existed, he has created, and then he has made himself known. Long ago, in previous times in the Old Testament, it was through many ways, many times, primarily through the prophets. But before that first Christmas, when Jesus was born to Joseph and Mary, he communicated with humanity in a variety of ways. He would speak audibly. Sometimes he would speak uh, temporarily through this pre-incarnate Christ or, or the second person of the Trinity, Jesus himself, showing up temporarily, disguised sometimes as an angel. They call him the angel of the Lord. Other times, God would speak through angels delivering messages. He spoke through burning bushes. He spoke through dreams. And he spoke through these prophets, some who just wrote. As, as you get to the end of your Old Testament, all those names that you can't pronounce, right? Habakkuk and others, that you gotta be really spiritual to read. He spoke through those guys. Some, some just had a writing ministry, some that were just very short, and that's all there were. Others that uh, had a speaking ministry, Elijah and Elisha, those guys, they did miracles and things. They, God spoke through them, and others who did both, like Isaiah. We have a big old book of the Bible that has been written by him. He also had a speaking ministry, speaking on behalf of the Lord, saying things like, thus says the Lord. And that's, that's a Pretty scary thing to say, right? To speak on behalf of the Lord. But all of these things, what we see here in verse one, what is being communicated, that all of these ways, that many times, many ways, uh, through the prophets, all of these were only temporary and incomplete, just giving little bits and pieces that we have the compilation of now. And now in this age, see this in verse two, but in this age, not don't, don't confuse the last days with like end times. Don't be confused there. It's just saying on this side of Christ coming today, what is much better? How has God spoken to us in his son? In his son, in Jesus Christ, the living word, who we now have recorded to us in the written word. That, beloved, is much better, is much more complete in a lasting way. God has spoken to us in this way through Jesus the Son, the second person of the Trinity. That's why it's better, because the Son is completely God and has made known to us all that is known about God. One commentator said, 
And these next statements then about the sun, they lay before us the brilliance or the magnificence, the beauty of just who Jesus is. Do you see all these statements trying to capture who is Jesus? He is completely God. Behold these things. It says that he has been appointed the heir of all things. Everything belongs to him. Do you realize that? Everything, the song that we just sang a few moments ago, that it's your breath in our lungs. The very fact that we exist and have breath and and are alive today is because of the Lord. All of the material things that we have, your name might be on the deed, your social security number may be attached to that bank account. You might own the business or possess the title, but who really owns it and who will possess it and whose inheritance does it belong to? belongs to the Lord. We are just the stewards. We are using it for him. Or are we? Are we using the Lord's things for our agenda or his? This begs the question then. He's the inheritor of all things. All things. You see, it's all things. Nothing is left out. Nothing is excluded. But why is it his inheritance? Look at the next phrase. Through whom he created the world's commentator said he inherits that which he created he created it and thus it is his jesus was there in genesis 1 creating the world in the context of the trinity god speaks and things come into existence it all belongs to him he is the creator he is uniquely and completely fully god inheritor of all things, the creator of all things, the radiance of the glory of God. The radiance. See this? Do you know what, this, what it's referring to here? Can anybody see God and live? Bible asks this question. Can anyone see God and live? No. You're toast. You see, you, none of us can fully take in all of who God is. That's why God just gives glimpses throughout the scriptures. But Christ here is the radiance just like no one can look at the sun in the sky and fully live. No one can approach that big uh, burning orb and expect to live. We would all be incinerated. We'd get close to it. But what do we see from the sun? We see its radiance. We see its, the light. We feel its warmth. To get too close to it, we would fry like an egg. So too with God. We see Jesus as God's radiance, we, we feel him. That's what this glory is. It's the effect of the manifest presence of God. We can't see God, but we know when he's moving. We know when he's at work. We know when he's transforming lives. We can see that as we've come under the God's word and we hear God speak through his word. He is moving. We feel his presence. That's God's glory. As we're worshiping and we, we know the glory and the love and the beauty of who God is and the smallness of who we are, that's the effect that where Jesus goes, we feel the effect of it. This is what happened throughout the New Testament, Jesus' ministry, right? Wherever he went, people were healed, people were made whole, people were saved from sin. And where he moves today, we see and feel his effects, right? The glory of this we glorify him in return. This is who Christ is. He is completely God. He is the radiance of that. He is how we know God in a very real way. He makes known his effect, his work, 
is moving. What else does it say here? He's the heir, he's the creator, he's the radiance, and then what? He is the exact imprint of his nature. Saying this another way, it's not fake or lacking anything. He is completely God. In Colossians 1, Paul says that in him, in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. It's not as though we say Jesus is the second person of the Trinity, and so therefore he might be lacking a few things, different role, different uh, things, but he has the exact, <laughs> the exact nature. All the attributes of God are possessed in who he is. It says imprint. It's like sticking a coin in Play-Doh. Yes, I have some Play-Doh up here. <laughs> is it all green? Of course not, because I have two young kids and they mix it up. <laughs> it's got some pink and things in it. Just thankfully it's not brown. But the, the imagery here is, it's like stick a coin in a piece of Play-Doh. I have a 50 cent piece right here. What, is, what does this represent? The two sides of the corporate Christian life, right? This is a different message, but that's why our <laughs> conviction is in, uh, in, uh, in small groups, two sides, the same coin of our corporate Christian life together, community together. We have this. One side is what we're doing now, church together. The other side of the same coin is small groups. Anyways. As a commercial break, hear what we're saying. Let's say this is the Lord. Christ is the exact imprint of it. Can't really see it here. But the imprint of what this is, is who Christ is. It's exactly like. He has the exact same characteristics. He's the exact same shape, the exact same uh, pieces in this. This is who Christ is. He's not different. He's not fake. He's not incomplete. He doesn't have anything else. He is the exact imprint. He is completely God. He's completely God. He's not some other uh, lesser being, some sort of demigod, but he is the exact imprint. He is the radiance of the glory of God who does this last thing. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Could anyone other than God do this? Could anyone other than God hold up the universe, this universe that completely blows our mind? We're just only scratching the surface of the bigness of it, the vastness of it. And yet Jesus, who is completely God, who spoke that universe into existence, who will inherit it one day, he continues to sovereignly sustain it. If for some reason he were to stop, it would all implode. It would be more catastrophic than any movie can capture. And yet it is Jesus who holds it all in his hand without getting stressed, without getting tired, without getting confused, without lacking direction or not knowing what to do. It is God who holds it. It is Christ here who is the upholder of this big and brilliant and beautiful universe that he has created. This is who God is. He's this is who Christ is. He's completely God. Are you beholding his brilliance? Are you beholding his beauty now? So what do we do with this stuff? How do we behold him? First, I would say we must come expectant. We must come expectant. When we approach Jesus through worship, this Jesus, when we approach him who first approached us and made himself known to us, we should expect to feel his effects. We should expect to be moved and transformed, to feel small when, you know, it's like when we sit out in the sun, do we, like, we expect to feel the warmth of the sun, don't we? We expect to intake a little bit of vitamin D. We might even expect if we're out there a little bit, we'll get burned up and we'll start to sweat. 
But when we go into the presence of the Son in that way, we expect for the effects to be felt. Same is true when we come to the Lord. When we open up his word in the morning, we sit there and we say, Lord, what do you have for me in this? When we come to church on Sunday, we come expectant, saying, God, what do you have for me? Show me something in your word. I am desperate for you. I need to be fed by you. We come expectant. When we walk into small group, we come expecting to be challenged by the word. We come expecting to apply it. We come expecting to be transformed. And that begins with our heart knowing who God is and desiring its effect to be had in our life. When we pause to pray, whether we're at work, whether we're in our home, whatever we're doing, as we pause to pray, knowing that Christ is God, and we're praying to him, we come expectant. We come expectant, wanting him to work. This is the attitude of our heart. And second, how do we behold him? Knowing that Christ is fully God, we release control. We release control. We don't control the inheritance. That belongs ultimately to someone else, right? Even though it's God who graciously lets us in on it. It belongs to him, it's all his. But here's the beauty of the gospel is that God graciously lets us in on it. And we're called in other places in the scriptures, we're called co-heirs. That just blows our mind. But we don't control it and we definitely don't uphold the universe, do we? Though maybe some of us are trying to do that. Some of us got so much on our plates where it's as if we think we can uphold the universe. We got our kids over here. We got work over here. We got our spouse over here. We got these clubs that we're a part of and associations that we're a part of. And we're just like trying to uphold the universe, you know, in some sort of crazy way. And can we do that? No, we can't. And when we try to, what does it do? It just crushes us. It gets us all out of whack. But who is God? Who is the upholder of the universe by the word of his power? He just speaks and it happens. It's God, it's not us. And so can I just call us back to this as a church this morning? Can I call us back to reprioritizing what we need to do and what God has called us to do? Because listen, there is not one situation in your life that Jesus is not Lord over. Not one situation that he is not Lord over, that he is not upholding. He is involved in it. He gets it. He has just given us the priorities, the responsibilities to to follow him. And when we get it out of whack, then that's like putting up these like filters or blinds in front of us to see the radiance of the glory of God. When we get this out of whack, when we get our priorities out of whack, that it's, you know, it's the Lord first, and our spouse, and then our kids, and all those things. When we do that, it's like putting these screens in front of us that get us all out of whack, and we can't see the way ahead. And so we just need to prioritize. We need to move some of these things out of our way so that the Lord is first. Prioritizing rightly. God first. God first. I'm going to approach the Lord first. Then if you're married, then it's your spouse, and then it's your kids. Just a reminder there, that's, that comes first. You and your spouse's relationship, me and this beautiful woman right here on the front row, it's, that's after the Lord, it's her and I, right? And then it's our kids, we love our kids, and it's work, and then it's all these other things. And if those things are even out of whack, that's, again, it's, we get, we're, we're putting up screens. So you say, okay, I got God first. Then it's, if it's your kids, out of whack, you know, right? If we're spending exorbitant amounts of money on our kids and not investing in our marriage, well, things are out of whack. Things are out of whack. If we're putting work ahead of our kids, if we're putting work ahead of things, things are getting out of whack. 
God is the upholder of the universe and he has shown us how to be responsible, how to live in light of him because he is God. So let's not lose focus, but let's behold the beautiful brilliance of Jesus as our Lord. He is the unique one. He is completely God. But is that all who he is? No, our text goes on. He is also completely man. Lest we think he is just God, Here is why he is so unique because he is completely man and so we must exalt his excellence. He is a man unlike anyone that has ever stepped foot on this earth. Completely God, completely man. Now there are some popular opinions about who Jesus is, aren't there? Maybe as you've talked to people, there's some really crazy ones out there, but there are several popular opinions about who Jesus. The first is that he was just a mythical man mythical man. He never, ever existed. And I'll tell you what, that, if, if, if you hear that, it's, there's just too much evidence to the contrary that Jesus was an actual living person on this earth. It's like if someone tells you that Jesus didn't really exist, he's just a myth, that's like saying that George Washington didn't exist on this earth. There's just too much historical record. There's too much uh, historical evidence physical evidence that that man existed. The same is true with Jesus. And we don't have time to get into all of it this morning, but Jesus did. But this is popular opinion. Second, some would say that he's just a moral man, that he was a moral man. He was a good teacher. He had a great impact. He had great things to say, great things to teach about how to live and do what's right and to love your neighbor. He was just a good teacher, a moral man. Still others would say that Uh, He was a radical man. Yeah, he was a a good man, a moral man, but man, he had a really big sacrifice. He really believed what he said, that he was willing to die for it. Kind of like other martyrs or other radical people that have died for uh, beliefs or things that they really took to heart. He's a radical man. Still others, popular opinion that he's a spiritual man, but he wasn't God. Even some that would call themselves a Christian or fly under the Christian banner in certain uh, circles that no, Jesus was not himself God. He was not divine. He was in tune with God. He had a unique relationship unlike us, but he was not himself God. He was just a spiritual man. Still others might say that he was just a spirit man. A spirit man, not actually human. He just appeared like a man. He was here, he was more like a ghost or an angel, but there was no flesh. He was just a spirit man, some sort of apparition wandering around the earth that everybody thought he was, but he wasn't really a man. I call these popular kind of tongue-in-cheek because um, each of them, we don't have time to go into, but they're all uh, quite ludicrous. All of these are actually inadequate and untrue. For if they were, if any of them were true, then the rest of verse three that we have this morning would be impossible. Because Jesus is better than opinions, isn't he? Jesus is better than opinions. He's completely God and completely man. Theologians, they call this the hypostatic union. Ready for some theology this morning? The hypostatic, what? Yeah, the hypostatic union. There's actually a good, if you're into like Christian rap, there's a a song, Shylin raps about this. It's it's actually kind of cool. It's pretty profound how he can put all this stuff. That's right, that's right. Cade, come on up. uh, Cade apparently knows it here. But the hypostatic union is how theologians call how all of God and all of man exist fully in one person. He's unique. He's, he's, all him, in essence, was uh, possessed in this one person. And here's a quote here that I have for you on the screen. Wayne Grudem, a, a theologian, in his little book called Christian Beliefs, 
He says it this way. In Jesus, God and man became one person, a person unlike anyone else the world has ever seen or will ever see. Jesus Christ was and forever will be fully God and fully man in one person. And that one person changed the course of history forever. That's why Christ is better. Because he is completely God, completely man. And as a result of that, he changed history forever. And he changed it because, look at our verse, verse three, the end of it, because he made purification for sin. Because he made purification for sin. And Hebrews, this, this book is going to go on and on, and it's going to show uh, how Jesus was a better high priest. High priests in, in those days, the priests of the Old Testament, they, they sacrificed animals and things to atone for sin. When, you know, we would do what is wrong, there are consequences that are required to restore a relationship. And so in those days, the system that was set up, grain, animals, and such, they were sacrificed as a consequence. As the, as the scapegoat and, and as, a, as the payment that would be paid as a result of the wrong that we did. Hebrews 9.22, just listen to this. It says, indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. There had to be a sacrifice. There were consequences when we did what was wrong. And so in the Old Testament, you take to the priest those, your stuff, he'd go through all the rituals, and then you'd be purified until you did it again. And it was never ending. It was ongoing. Look here. But, Hebrews goes on, 10.4, it says, but it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. So Jesus did what no other high priest could ever do. Didn't offer an animal. Didn't give some grain. He didn't do anything else. He did what no other priest could do. He offered himself. He offered himself and made purification for sin. That's why Hebrews 7 says this. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest. This is verse 26. Holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he himself did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Jesus and only Jesus was able to do this, to make purification for sin because he was completely God. And as completely God, he was able to bear the excruciating weight of the sins of his people on that cross. Only someone divine could do that and bear in those three days that eternal punishment that was due for our sin and offense against God. But as one who is completely man, who lived perfectly, becoming the innocent spotless lamb to shed his own blood, that's who Christ is. Made purification for sin. Every other religion says in some way, do enough good, do enough good, do enough good things, and that'll cancel out your bad things, and that'll earn favor with your God. 
But Christ says, you can't do enough. You can't do enough. You're so corrupted, you can't even try, let alone want to. But God knew this. He had a plan from the very beginning to redeem a people for himself. Jesus' coming wasn't some plan B intervention. Well, I guess that system isn't working. Those priests can't get together. These things, no. He came to take on our sin and do us one better. Give us his righteousness. It's making purification. It's not as if Christ came and then, he, okay, we had this big debt that we had, had uh, accumulated because of all the bad things that we did. And Jesus came, he paid that debt, and now we're back at zero. It's not the way it works. He did all that, but he did one better. He gave us his righteousness so that we might be like Christ. He gave us access to that inheritance that he had won. That's the beauty of following Christ. He did what one better. Once he did that, he came to do. He gave us that access. This, beloved, is the gospel. This is the gospel. This is what Christ did. This is who Jesus was. And once he did what he came to do, once he came, mission accomplished on the cross, purification for sins, what did he do after he made the purification for sins? He, what? He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Once he came, what he did to do on that cross, he ascended back into heaven as king of kings and lord of lords, and he sat down in the place of honor as the highly exalted one. Men, sometimes we do this when we get home from work. We think, oh, I worked hard. I'm gonna go sit in my lazy boy, and we sit down as the exalted one. It's not like that. <laughs> this isn't like this. It's not quite it's not quite. He's not up there taking it easy. Yes, his work was done. Yes, the mission was accomplished. He sat down at the right hand of the throne of God as that exalted one. 10.12 says this. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And from there, he continues his work today as Lord. From that chair, he upholds the universe and he intercedes for us as we pray. Got that? Like, that's what he's doing now. He's making intercession for us. That's why, in Christ's name, that's why we pray to him because it's like Christ, he is the introduction to the Father. Without Christ as our mediator, without Christ as the go-between, we could never communicate with the Father. That's what he's doing now, and so we exalt him for it. He's sitting in the place of honor at the right hand of the Father on high, of the majesty on high, as the exalted one who came, accomplished, conquered, and is now reigning over the world. So how do we exalt this excellent one? How do we exalt this unique one, the one that is completely God and completely man? First is this, be washed. Be washed. That's what he means by being purified. Have you embraced Christ as your purification from the sin that separates you from God? That's the way that we exalt him there's no better way to lift Christ high to say, you are Lord of my life than to be made low. To humble yourself, you lift him high as you go low in repentance. Will you be made new today? Will you be washed and purified? It's the way we have access. That's how we lift high. I'll just say this, you know, it's okay to not be okay in this church. We've all got junk, right? We've all got sin. We've all got a past that we're not proud of, but Christ did not leave us there, did he? He came to purify us, to make us clean, to be washed. 
to teach us how to live and how to walk through it. And so once we are washed, then how do we exalt this? Oh God, how do we exalt his excellence? Well, we are watchful then. Watchful of how we live our life. Watchful of how Christ lived his life. Hebrews 4 says this, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Who do we confess as Lord? It's Jesus, one who's completely God and completely man. We hold fast to that. Four, verse 15, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. He's not aloof. He's not distant. He came and he lived on this earth. But he was one who in every respect had been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He was the perfect one. Every challenge, every temptation that came his way, every time where he could have stumbled, he didn't. He was the perfect one. He was the innocent one. And that's why his sacrifice was the accepted one. So verse 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. If you approach, approach the Lord, will he ever be too busy to talk with you? No. Will you ever get his voicemail? No. We can approach with confidence for grace, for the help that we need, for the mercy we need. We're to be watchful as we live. Christ as completely man. He gave us this example how to live, yet without sin, how to live as a new creation. And so we look to his word for help. This is where it was recorded. Isn't this beautiful? Like Christ came and lived, we have the uh, historical evidence, but then we want to know how he lived, what he did, the decisions he made, what honors God. God in his kindness gave us this book, the book that we talked about last week, to show us then how to be watchful and how to live our life here, careful about how we want to live, how we want to make decisions, how we want to relate to the people around us. Give careful attention. Christ is better and his way of life is better too. Can you say amen to that? Amen. That's right. Jesus is better, and his way of life is better too. So as we close here, we've been answering this question, who is Jesus? I say it, he's better. He's better. He's completely God and completely man. Many people have tried to answer the question, try to wrap it up. John MacArthur, he gives a fitting though even incomplete, to describe the fullness and the completeness of who God is in this commentary. And I just want to read it as we close. We move into a time of communion in a minute. But listen to this. Someone has said that Jesus Christ came from the bosom of the Father to the bosom of a woman. He put on humanity that we might put on divinity. He became son of man that we might become sons of God. He was born contrary to the laws of nature, lived in poverty, was reared in obscurity, and only once crossed the boundary of the land in which he was born, and that in his childhood. He had no wealth or influence and had neither training nor education in the world's schools. His relatives were inconspicuous and uninfluential. In infancy, he startled a king. In boyhood, he puzzled the learned doctors. In manhood, he ruled the course of nature. He walked upon the billows and hushed the sea to sleep. He healed the multitudes without medicine and made no charge 
for his services. He never wrote a book, and yet all the libraries of the world could not hold the books about him. He never wrote a song, yet he has furnished the theme for more songs than all the songwriters together. He never founded a college, yet all the schools together cannot boast of as many students as he has had. He never practiced medicine, and yet he has healed more broken hearts than all the doctors have healed broken bodies. This Jesus Christ is the star of astronomy, the rock of geology, the lion and the lamb of zoology, the harmonizer of all discords, and the healer of all diseases. Throughout history, great men have come and gone, yet he lives on. Herod could not kill him. Satan could not seduce him. Death could not destroy him. And the grave could not hold him. Amen. Who is Jesus? Jesus is better.